We are back in our third session of this course, and we are continuing our discussion of the theology of Islam. In the last hour, we just highlighted the points, and now we want to go a little bit more in-depth about each one. Islam starts with the doctrine of God and His oneness. In fact, many Muslim theologians say that was the reason that God sent Islam as the final religion, that people had gotten corrupt ideas of God, and Muhammad came to purify the truth of God's oneness. So the cornerstone of Islamic theology is the belief in the absolute oneness and sovereignty and transcendence of God. Surah 112 is one key surah in this regard. It's, it's a short surah, but Muslims repeat it in their prayers many times every day. The surah says, say, he is God, the one and only. God, the eternal, the absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Quran is rich with passages that talk about what we would say natural theology. There are really beautiful passages in the Quran that point the readers and the listeners to the truth of God's oneness and God's sovereignty. The Quran refers to, uh, you know, challenges people to observe the nature, to observe the order of the world, to observe the beauties around them and make them thankful for God, the Creator. Now, in this course, we uh, do not have the time, and this is not the place, to talk about the life of Prophet Muhammad. You have covered the life of Muhammad in other uh, courses. But from the Islamic perspective, and from, from, the, from the Islamic tradition, from the perspective of Islamic tradition, Muhammad appeared in the context of pagans in 7th century Arabia. And people, people were worshipping idols and were treating angels and sons as sons and daughters of God. Now, uh, let me make a parenthetical comment here. And I believe this is things, uh, I'm sure you have covered this in other courses. Western scholars have raised a lot of doubt and questions about the truth of the accounts of Islamic origins. Many Muslims don't have an, any idea that we have a 150 to a 200 year gap between the time of Muhammad and the earliest writings of his life and his sayings. So I am not saying that what the Islamic tradition says is absolutely true, but I just want you to know their perspective. So according to the Islamic tradition, Prophet Muhammad started his prophetic ministry when he was 40 years old in the year 610 AD. And according to Islamic traditions, Muhammad was so disturbed with the, all the idol worship in Mecca. And so that's why the emphasis of the Quran is on the oneness and the sovereignty and the transcendence of God. Surah 59, verses 22 to 24 is another passage. I'm just going to read portions of this verse, these verses. So Surah 59, verses 22 to 24. God is he who knows all things, both secret and open. The most gracious, the most merciful, the sovereign, the holy one, the source of peace, the guardian of faith, the preserver of safety, the exalted in might, the irresistible, the supreme, the creator. To him belong the most beautiful names. He is the exalted in might, the wise. Yeah, I was just reading portions of that passage. Another verse similar to this one, we will not look at it, but it's Surah 2, verse 255. 
So based on these passages, Muslims traditionally have talked about the 99 beautiful names of God. And if you ever look at Islamic art, you will see that there are no images in Islamic architecture. That's forbidden. But you have beautiful uh, calligraphy, and many times it's the names of God written on Islamic buildings. And the God that we encounter in the pages of the Quran is a God who has revealed his will to the people. Although the Quran, in every, the opening of every chapter, talks about Allah being gracious and merciful, every chapter except Surah 9 of the Quran opens with that verse, in, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. But the emphasis is not on how forgiving and gracious he is, but on his sovereignty, on his kingship, on his rule that has to be obeyed. So that's the first article of faith in Islam. Another, uh, the second article Muslims talk about is, or I mean, these are not in order, but we'll talk about angels. God has not only created the physical world, but God has created the spiritual world. And according to Islam and the teachings of the Quran, there are two different kinds of spiritual beings in the spiritual world. According to the Quran, belief in angels is an essential part of faith. I'm sorry, the, 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 two creature, the two categories of spiritual beings, I'm sorry, they're called angels and jinns. We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. But angels, according to the Quran, are creatures formed of light. They serve and worship God continually and faithfully. They record people's actions. They receive people's souls when they die. They witness for or against people on the day of judgment, and they guard the gates of hell and serve the faithful in paradise. Among the angels, there are some archangels, and Gabriel is the most prominent angel identified in the Quran. He is the angel of revelation. It's through God gave his message to Gabriel, and Gabriel communicated that to Prophet Muhammad, according to Islamic traditions. And then Muhammad repeated these messages during the 23 years of his lifetime, and they were then collected in the book which we know as the Quran. The other class of spiritual beings is jinns, as I mentioned, and there's been a lot of speculation and debate about what these creatures are and what can they do. M Muslims believe they are also powerful, intelligent creatures, and some, uh, unlike ang angels, are always obedient to God, but jinns, some are obedient and some are disobedient. Um, we are not going to get into these issues in this class, but uh, if you ever study a topic which we call folk Islam, the beliefs that many people actually have and live with in the Muslim world, in folk Islam, jinns are believed that they can, t they can go into people's bodies and into animals. And so there is a lot of fear in a Muslim life about all these dark forces around them. There is a lot of, there's a strong belief on the power of evil eye. So one great truth of the gospel is that Jesus can free us from these fears. Uh, so just, that's just for you to know about the, the lived lives of Muslims. Because a lot of times, these theological things, many Muslims are even ignorant about their own theology. So... It's, it's good to know what the theology is and yet what people live and practice in their daily lives. The next uh, article of faith we're going to talk about is the belief in the prophets of God. Islam, as I said, makes the claim that it's a very rational worldview. God has created the world. 
the spiritual world. He's created the physical world and the people. But according to the Islamic view of man, uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. It, Islam does not view it as original sin. Islam views it as a moment of forgetfulness. So God has made people good. People are not sinful and don't need a savior. But people are forgetful and are easily misguided. And so God sends prophets to remind people of the straight path and to guide them back to the truth. That's where prophets fit in Islamic theology. So it makes no sense for a Muslim to say that Jesus is God in the flesh. It's like, why would God come in the flesh? We don't need that. We need guidance from God. We need prophets. We need a human being to teach us how to obey God. We don't need God to teach us how to obey God. You see how that makes sense in a Muslim worldview. So that's why Islam believes that God has sent prophets throughout human history. And since all prophets have come from one God, they've all brought the same message. Uh, the Quran actually says, well, we accept all these prophets. All prophets have brought the same message, and every nation has had a prophet. And that message is basically to believe in God, uh, believe in righteousness, and believe in the day of judgment. It's Surah 16, verse 36. I'm just going to read a portion of the verse. It says, God has sent amongst every people an apostle, and with the command, serve God and refrain from evil. In Surah 2, verse 136, and uh, there are many other verses similar to this, but I will just look at this passage. Surah 2, verse 136, this is what we read in the Quran. We believe in God and the revelation given to us and to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and that which was given to Moses and Jesus, and that which was given to all prophets from their Lord. Now listen to the next phrase here. We make no discrimination between one and another of them, and we bow to God. That's Surah 2, verse 136. A number of other verses I will share with you, but we will not look at them. That state the same thing. Surah 384, Surah 4, verses 163 to 165, and Surah 6, verses 84 to 87. So God has sent prophets and messengers throughout history, the Quran doesn't mention this, but according to Islamic tradition, God has sent 124,000 prophets. The Quran mentions anywhere between 25 to 28 of them. There is some debate about the exact number. And the majority of the prophets are biblical names, as we just read in that passage, for example. The Quran talks about Adam, Noah, Abraham, Lot, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, Elisha, Jonah. And then in the New Testament, Zechariah, John the Baptist, and Jesus. Now, uh, just a couple of other uh, points about the prophets you should know. Uh, the Quran uses two words for prophets. One is Nabi, and one is Rasul. Rasul means the sent one. And this very, uh, Nabi is very similar to Hebrew. According to Islam, um, I, I mean, according to the common view among Muslims, Nabis are prophets who have been given a message by God, who, who have not been given a scripture by God, whereas the Rasuls are the prophets that have been given a divine book, divine scripture. Nabis have been sent basically to confirm previous messages of God. Another key note, key, key doctrine about Islamic view of prophets is this. Muslims believe 
that although God has sent prophets throughout history, Muhammad is the last prophet of God. He was the seal of prophets who brought God's final and complete revelation to all humanity. According to Islam, all the prophets prior to Muhammad were limited in their mission and in their geographical area. But with the coming of Muhammad, God's final will is known for all humankind forever. Uh, the fourth point we will get into, which is, is a logical conclusion is from prophets, is the scriptures. As I said, not all prophets have had divine scriptures, but in order for God to guide a forgetful humanity, God has sent books. Now, according to Islamic theology, some of these books have completely been lost, like the scrolls of Abraham. So God has sent previous divine revelations, but they were lost uh, forever. But some divine scriptures uh, remain to this day, and the Quran mentions them. So the Quran talks about the Torah of Moses, the Psalms of David, and the Gospel or Injil of Jesus. But there is a little uh, qualification that although these scriptures have remained to this day, they are no longer trustworthy. They have been corrupted. So the Muslim attitude about the previous scriptures and, uh, becomes clearer. So the Quran is not only God's final uh, book, but also the one which has been miraculously preserved, and it has been preserved uncorrupted to this day. And the Muslim attitude is this. Whatever was true in the previous scriptures have been repeated in the Quran. And whatever uh, falsehood had entered the previous books was purged by the Quran. Therefore, the Quran is all that is needed for humankind to gain true and sufficient knowledge of God. And Muslims say that this is the greatest miracle of God. Uh, we, we, in this course, we cannot get into those claims of why Islam believes the Quran is the greatest miracle of God, but that's a fundamental belief about the nature of the Quran. And they say this is greater than any other miracle God did through other prophets. A Muslim would say, you Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. Were you there? Did you see it for yourself? So it was just a miracle. Even if it happened, it was a miracle just for a few people for a time. This is a miracle for all people at all times. Everybody can see it and encounter it. And uh, so that's, again, I want you to get that big picture of Islamic theology. One God has created the world, created the people. The signs of God are all around us, the signs of God's goodness and creation. And, but people are forgetful. People, people stray from the straight path. God has sent prophets. They've all reminded people of the truth of God through their scriptures. People are commanded to obey God, submit to God, and one day people will be judged based on how well they have obeyed God. No need for all the mumbo-jumbo mysteries of Christian theology. So the fifth point is the day of judgment. The fifth point of Islamic theology, that is. Even a very quick reading of the Quran demonstrates the major, th the major theme of heaven and hell. The Quran insists that there will be a day of judgment when all will be held accountable before God for their beliefs and their actions. The Quran is filled with dramatic depictions of the tortures of hell and the beautiful uh, imageries of delight in paradise. One imagery that is used of the Day of Judgment is that of a balance. 
Surah 23, verses 102 and 103. Then those, this is describing what will happen on the day of judgment. Then those whose balance is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls. In hell will they abide. So that's how right now we cannot have any assurance of salvation. According to Islamic theology, the only people who can know that they will go to heaven are those who are martyred in the cause of God. But if you are not martyred, you just don't know how heavy or light is your balance before God. Everybody has to work hard and just hope for the best. I was talking to a Christian a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me he was on a plane uh, sitting next to a Shiite Muslim cleric, clergyman. He was wearing his robe and his turban. And they started talking about the issue of good works and merit. So he said, well, how do you know how many points you have before God? The, my Christian friend asked the Shiite cleric. And the Shiite cleric uh, actually had calculated how many good points he had. He said on a scale of 0 to 100, he was 92. And my Christian friend was very surprised of his exact measurements. Now, let me tell you, no Muslim will, usually Muslims don't come up with a number figure because you just can't know. So my Christian friend asked the Shiite clergyman this question. He said to him, you have said your point before God is 92, so you're doing pretty good. But what about if God's passing mark is 94? And the Shiite clergyman said, nobody's asked that question from me before. Then, this is the incredible part, then my friend gave him a Bible right there on the plane, and then ask him to read the Gospel of John, chapter 3, the visit of Jesus with Nicodemus. And the Shiite cleric read it right there on the plane, and just on his own, turned to the Christian friend and said, according to what Jesus says here, you got to be 100 to get in. 92 is not going to cut it either. That was incredible that he was able to realize that we have to be born again if we want to see the kingdom of God. So this is... This is, very, in, in very brief summary, is the points in Islamic theology, the foundations of Islamic theology. Now, Shiites have uh, some variations to this, and the variations are rooted in history and philosophy, which we cannot go in great detail here. But this is the way Shiites highlight their, uh, the outline of their fundamental theology. Shiites say, we believe in the oneness of God, we believe in the justice of God, and this is a discussion that goes back deep in history between Sunnis and Muslim philosophers. I will get back on this point when we talk about the Trinity. So, uh, they, so again, should I say we believe in the oneness of God, in the justice of God, we believe in prophets, we believe in the day of judgment, but between prophets and the day of judgment is another point of doctrine for Shiites. And that is, we believe in the need for imams. So imams, basically, Shiites say, uh, not only do we need prophets and scriptures, but we need infallible spiritual leaders to interpret the scriptures for us. So that's, these are some additions in Shiite theology. Now, besides these points of theology, these actually establish the foundation for Islamic life and practice. So when Islam says you have to proclaim the profession of faith, 
there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger, that's rooted in the Islamic belief in the oneness of God and the necessity of prophets, the final one being Muhammad. And when Islam commands the followers of, of its faith to say their prayers five times a day, to give alms, to fast, and go to Mecca, these are all in order for people to merit favor with God. And then in Islamic uh, world, uh, you've heard of the term sharia. Basically, sharia, which is, which is loosely interpreted law into English, but it's really more than law. Sharia is, consists of all the instructions that shape the life of a Muslim in every detail. So you can't, just, you can't be a devout Muslim say, oh, I just believe in God, I believe in Prophet Muhammad, and that's good enough. You have to obey God's commands about every area of your life. And in fact, we're not going to get into this, but in fact, this is one of the objections Muslims have against Christians. They say, you Christians, you, you say you believe in Jesus, you have a relationship with God, but there, are not, there is nothing that regulates your everyday life. But Islam guides every aspect of our daily life. If you pick up an Islamic manual on how to live, these are the topics you will find in them. And the, and, and the majority of these books are not devoted to theological discussions, but to practical daily living. So the first part of many of these manuals talk about the requirements for ritual purity. The manuals talk about what things make you unclean and what things make you clean. Now, for some of you, this might sound like what the Pharisees used to do in the time of Jesus. And Muslims who take their faith seriously live very much like that. Then usually after the section on cleanliness, the discussions move to the ritual worship, how to say your prayers properly. Now, I am going to uh, act out uh, just for you to have an idea of what these prayers look like. There are detailed discussions uh, on how to say the prayer properly. Before saying your prayers, you have to go and wash certain parts of your body. There are detailed debates of how to wash and what parts to wash. So in fact, Shiites wash their arms like this. Sunnis wash their arms like this. So, and then how to wash your face, how to wash your hair, your feet. But these are all symbolic of we try to cleanse ourselves to come before God. And then you have to face Mecca certain times of the day, five times, you, beginning at dawn, and then mid-morning, uh, or, or, or around noon, I, no, excuse me, at, at noon time. The third time of prayer is uh, before sunset, just before sunset. Another set of prayers after sunset, and the fifth time of prayer at the end of the night. And in each set of these prayers, you have to repeat certain rounds or certain units so in the morning, in the first prayer, there are two units of prayer. In the second and third set of prayers, there are four units of prayer. After sunset prayer is three units of prayer. And the one, and the one in the late evening, four units of prayer. Everything is described in detail for you. And so then you face Mecca and you begin to say these prayers. And so one part of it is, is standing straight. Sunnis usually hold their arms like this, where Shiites put their arms down. There is a part where you bow like this. 
there is a part where you sit down like this, and there's a part where you prostrate on the floor. And these are all symbolic of your obedience and submission to God. Now, when Muslims gather together and do this out in open, it makes an impression on the outsiders too about the strength of the community. Or when the Muslims go to Mecca, a couple of million of them every year, that creates an impression about the unity of the world of Islam. So anyway, let's get back into the manuals of Islamic living again. So there are sections that talk about cleanliness, sections that talk about ritual prayers, sections on funerals and how to conduct a funeral and how to wrap a shroud around the dead person and how to bury the person, sections on almsgiving, how to give religious taxes out of your income, sections that address the issues of fasting, of pilgrimage to Mecca and jihad, and then additional parts like oaths and vows and sacrificing animals and prohibited food. And so this is, these are the kind of books Muslim scholars write. See, if you want to become, if you want to become a prominent religious leader in the Islamic world, you don't write books on theology. That doesn't make you a great Muslim leader. You write a book on how, to, a manual on living your daily life. And everything that a Muslim does is divided in, a, in five categories of behavior. Everything is a, a, a categorical ethical act. So these are the five categories of human behavior. The first category is the actions you have to do. They are obligatory. They are required. Uh, they are called wajib in Arabic. You have to do these things before God. And some of these duties are individual, some are communal. So to say your prayers, to give alms, to fast, these are your individual duties. And participating in jihad is a communal duty. So some acts you have to do, they are obligation. It's not up to you to decide. The second category are what we call prohibited acts or haram in Arabic. If you do it, you should be punished. And if you don't do it, God will reward you for it. So things like stealing, illicit sexual activity, wine drinking, these are the actions that are prohibited, they are haram. The third categories of actions are the actions that are recommended. These are acts that are for you, they're good for you to do these actions, but you are not obligated to do them. If you do them, God will reward you, but if you neglect them, God will not punish you. This will basically get you extra points with God. The fourth category of actions are actions that are discouraged or they are not good to do. Uh, this category in Arabic, we call them makruh. And these are the acts. Uh, there is no punishment if you do these things, but it's better if you not do them. And then the fifth category are acts that are permitted, but they are morally indifferent. It doesn't matter whether you do it or not do it. They're called either mubah or jayez. So it might be hard for you as Christians to imagine this, but everything in your life is planned out for you, basically. And if you want to live a life pleasing to God, according to Islam, you have to obey. And this is what Muslim legal scholars and Muslim clerics debate about various ethical issues. And the legal rulings that a Muslim leader issues is called fatwa. So people come to their Muslim leaders and present a problem and they tell them, give us a fatwa, give, tell us what to do. 
according to God's will. I was just reading an article in the newspaper last week, and the most prestigious Islamic university in the world is in Egypt called Al-Azhar. And, and this is old, one of the oldest universities in the world. It was established over a thousand years ago. And Muslim leaders and scholars sit in their rooms and people come to them or telephone them or email them asking for fatwas. And the article said about 80 to 85% of the fatwas were people's questions about divorce. They wanted to divorce their spouses. Now, um, we don't have time to go into how Muslim leaders base their legal rulings or fatwas, but they consult the Quran. The Quran is the first thing. Then the Sunnah or the traditions of Prophet Muhammad. Muhammad was a perfect example in Islam and he is the role model to imitate. So what Prophet did and what Prophet said is very important. Then the third thing is if they use the Quran, sometimes there are not clear verses in the Quran about a situation. Sometimes there are not clear indications from the life of Muhammad about a particular issue. So Muslims use the laws of analogy, analogical reasoning. And for example, the Quran talks about not drinking wine, but doesn't talk about doing drugs. They didn't, you know, it wasn't an issue back then. So Muslims say, well, the drugs are still not good, although it's not in the Quran, or Muhammad didn't say anything about it, but it's still, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's bad for you, so you shouldn't do it. And then Muslims use a consensus of the community as another way to determine a fatwa. What has the community said about this issue historically? And finally, if you're a scholar, you can have your own reasoning about a new issue. And this is more common among Shiite scholars than Sunni scholars to, to present their own opinions about something new. So briefly, this in a nutshell, this is the worldview of Islam. The theology of Islam and the life of Islam perfectly fit. They feel very confident about what they believe and who they are. And they challenge Christians about, you know, our life, we don't have rules and regulations, and we don't have clear guidance in our daily living. Now, this is the end of our session today. Our next session, we will get into the specific challenges of Islamic theology and explore how we need to better understand our own faith and how to uh, explain it to our Muslim friends. Thank you for your patience today.